Good morning everybody, welcome to our service of worship and remembrance this morning at the Bethel as we meet together to celebrate the salvation that is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ, to remember his death and resurrection by sharing bread and wine together and to come together as a family and learn to live more closely as faithful disciples of Jesus. We're going to begin our worship this morning by standing and singing together from Praise the Lord number 96 and after we've sung that together Please remain standing and I'd like us to say together the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught all his disciples to say. So, praise the Lord 96. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. And so we pray together as Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. The care news for this week. So Elaine has had a pretty rough week with a very sore back. She might appreciate a phone call or an offer of help. Esther has also had flu this week. Is she recovering at all, Johnny? Or is it? Okay, good. Um, I know Anne has been uh, struggling with a, a particularly bad week this week as she um, struggles with the loss of her job at the moment. So please keep her in your thoughts and um, and care too. Um, I ought to mention that Sarah's not very well at home at the moment um, as well. <coughs> so I'm obviously thinking of her at this time and ask that you will too. It's good to see you, Gladys, with us this week. It's good to see you with us as well, Jack. Um, and Pete, I think this is the first time you've been here for some some number of Sundays. So um, lovely to see you here too. And just a reminder that after the baptism yesterday at... Um, Ashton of Sarah East. She's due to be received in formally, I was going to say, here next Sunday. So um, that will be part of the service next Sunday morning. Next week, Rebecca um, is due to prepare the care news, so please give her your information. So is there anything else that you'd like me to include in a pastoral prayer? Now, okay, so that was about Marion, who's particularly struggling with uh, anemia, amongst other things at the moment. So um, she doesn't answer the phone, so would appreciate um, written correspondence, a card or a note. So that's Lizzie as well, who's not feeling very well. And uh, Debbie and Trevor's daughter, Hannah, has had a little baby boy, Ethan, this week, who's healthy and arrived safely. A whole year since... Pete passed away and Christine and the family would like our thoughts and cares and prayers too. Okay, so that's a reminder about Sarah East baptism yesterday and a prayer of thanks. Is there anything else that anybody would like to include in the prayer? Okay, if you just bow your heads, we'll offer a word of prayer now then. Father, we come before you as our almighty creator as the one who is responsible for everything and everyone. 
and is a great and almighty God. And yet one who cares for us as individuals and wants us as individuals to respond to you. And sometimes we find that hard to contemplate, Father, that you as creator of the universe can care about the small world that we spend our lives in. Help us to understand that, Father, and to to open our hearts and our minds to the truth that you are there for us and that you gave your lovely son Jesus for us that we might have a hope of salvation in him. And Father, we've thought a little bit about Elaine and Esther and Anne and Marion and Sarah and Lizzie and there are others Father who we haven't spoken out loud but who we know or maybe don't even know are either feeling ill or uncomfortable or going through incredible stress and difficult times at the moment and we pray Lord that you will help us as brothers and sisters to them to be a strength and a and caring and show our concern and love for those around us. Inspire us, Lord, to come up with new ways of showing love to one another as you have shown love to us in your Son. And we think particularly this week of Christine and her family and the sad anniversary of Pete's passing away and we pray that you will be with them and that you will be a strength to them and that you will help them to think about the future time when in your kingdom they will be able to meet again Father That's what was being celebrated yesterday. Someone committing themselves in baptism, Sarah committing herself in baptism to you, to a life of service to you, but ultimately to an acceptance that whatever she does and whenever she fails, your love is big enough to forgive her. And we thank you for the witness that that was yesterday particularly to those involved in the Ashton Youth Club and those who've been past members of Ashton as well and seen the doors close there in the past. We pray that you'll be with Sarah and with her family and her extended family and with all of us to keep us close to you and close to your lovely son Jesus. Amen. What I want us to take away from this morning is one simple lesson. God is a God of possibility. And that's something that this hymn acknowledges and it celebrates. New every morning is the love 
our wakening and uprising prove, through sleep and darkness safely brought, restored to life and power and thought. I'd like us now to listen to two readings. One is from the Bible and one isn't. Ollie's going to come and read to us from Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. And after that reading, Vicky's going to come and read a short story, which I hope you'll find puzzling and provocative. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? What am I about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if they have done what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all the earth to do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What is the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he says, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. There was once a small town filled with believers who always sought to act in obedience to the teachings of God. When faced with difficult situations, the leaders of the community would often be found deep in prayer or searching the scriptures for guidance and wisdom. Late one evening, in the middle of winter, a young man from the neighbouring city arrived at the gates of the town's church seeking refuge. The caretaker, a man of deep faith, immediately let him in and seeing that he was hungry and cold, provided a warm meal and some fresh clothes. 
After he had rested, the young man explained how he had fled the city because the authorities had labelled him a political dissident. It turned out that the man had been critical of both the government and the church in his work as a journalist. The caretaker brought the young man back to his home and allowed him to stay until a plan had been worked out concerning what to do next. When the priest was informed of what had happened, he called the leaders of the town together in order to work out what ought to be done. After two days of discussion, it was agreed that the man should be handed over to the authorities in order to face up to the crimes he had committed. But the caretaker protested, saying, This man has committed no crimes. He has merely criticised what he believes to be the injustices perpetrated by the authorities in the name of God. What you say may be true, replied the priest, but his presence put the, puts the whole of the town in danger. For what if the authorities find out where he is and learn that we have protected him? But the caretaker refused to hand him over to the priest, saying, He is my guest, and while he is under my roof, I will ensure that no harm comes to him. If you take him from me by force, then I will publicly attest to having helped him and suffer the same injustice as my guest. The caretaker was well loved by the people, and the priest had no intention of letting something happen to him. So the leaders went away again, and this time searched the scriptures for an answer for they knew that the caretaker was a man of deep faith. After a whole night of poring over the scriptures, the leaders came back to the caretaker, saying, We have read the sacred book all through the night seeking guidance, and have found that it tells us that we must respect the authorities of this land and witness to the truth of the faith through submission to them. But the caretaker also knew the sacred words of scripture and told them that the Bible also asked that we care for those who suffer and are persecuted. So there and then, in desperation, the leaders began to pray fervently. They beseeched God to speak to them, not as a still, small voice in their conscience, but rather in the way that he had spoken to Abraham and Moses. They begged God to communicate directly to them so that the caretaker would see the error of his ways. Sure enough, the sky began to darken, and God descended from heaven, saying, The priest and the elders speak the truth, my friends. In order to protect this town, this man must be handed over to the authorities. But the caretaker, a man of deep faith, looked up to heaven and replied, If you want me to remain faithful to you, my God, then I can do nothing but refuse your advice. For I do not need the scriptures or your words to tell me what I ought to do. You have already demanded that I look after this man. You have already written that I must protect him at all costs. Your words of love have been spelled out by the lines of this man's face. Your text is found in the texture of his, of his flesh. So, my God, I defy you precisely in order to remain faithful to you. With this, God turned to the town's leaders and addressed them directly. If I cannot convince him, then neither will you. Now leave him in peace. Then God smiled and quietly withdrew, knowing that the matter had been finally settled. While you're starting to digest that, let me tell you um, why that story echoes with me. Um, a couple of months ago, and I was eating more pizza than was probably good for me, and the company of other brothers from this church were also eating more pizza than was good for them. But we were also reading God's Word, and we were talking about it. And in the study guide that we were using, the question we were discussing was this. 
in one word, how would you describe your relationship with God? And the other guys in the room had their own answers, and mine was this, combative. Now that's quite a long word. Sounds quite nice in the mouth. Combative. The sort of words that Rowan Atkinson in one of his Mr. Bean Blackadder moments would really enjoy saying, combative. But it's not just a nice word because it captures for me what my faith in God is like. I'm blessed or cursed with the ability to see things from everybody's perspective, to realise that there are often multiple ways of seeing things and that for me, around any question of faith, questions multiply. So that makes life quite hard for me. It takes me a long time to think about things. And it makes my relationship with God very questioning and very challenging. And that's why that aspect of the story appeals to me. Because it's about a challenge. It's about somebody trying to come to terms with what God's word revealed to us in scripture means in a circumstance. And having a fairly sort of confrontation, a fairly direct conversation with God and trying to work out what it means. And I think that's okay because that seems to happen in Scripture. And I want to think about a couple of places where arguments seem to happen, certainly from a human perspective, and think what they might teach us about our own discipleship. Before I get there, I'd like us um, to come to terms with an image that the Bible uses quite frequently. Um, You can turn if you want to, I'm not going to stay there very long, but it's just from the beginning of the book of Job. Job begins, it pushes us back into the past, far back into history. And it creates that great sense of expectation that there is when an empty space fills with people gathering together with a purpose in mind. It's like standing here very early on a Sunday morning, say at about 25 past 10 before the service is due to start, and then slowly watching the room fill with people coming here, bringing all sorts of things with them and waiting for something to happen. And in verse 6, the story says, the day came when the members of the court of heaven took their places in the presence of the Lord, and the adversary Satan was there among them. Now in Job, this character, Satan, is like, I guess, the counsel for prosecution, the prosecuting lawyer in a court of law. And this image of God's heavenly court, of his heavenly counsel, is one that's carried through the Old Testament. It pops up in Kings and Jeremiah and in the Psalms. And maybe heaven is like that. I don't know. I've not seen it. And Paul is temporarily unavailable to tell me what it's really like. But God uses this image to give us a picture of the way things work. It works sometimes like a court. And in a courtroom there's a judge and there are people assembled to hear the case and Satan, the adversary, makes one half of the case against Job. Things are not taken for granted in God's court. Evidence is heard. Different perspectives are listened to. An argument takes place. Because God is not irrational or vindictive. He doesn't act out of spice fight or malice. He acts with consideration to what happens. And that should give us faith and reassurance that God is not 
somebody unpredictable that we have to be very careful to keep happy because we never know quite how he's going to behave. God acts predictably and fairly and on the basis of good evidence. And that's what the argument in heaven between Satan and God teaches us. It teaches us that God hears all the evidence in a case. He makes rational judgments about what is right and what is wrong, about who is deserving of judgment and who is deserving of blessing. And so, having understood that image, when we turn back to Genesis chapter 18, we find that God's heavenly court seems to have come to earth. Chapter 18 begins, The Lord appeared to Abraham as he was sitting at the opening of his tent in the heat of the day. And he looked up and saw three men standing against him. Three heavenly visitors, God's heavenly court, come to earth. And Abraham, as we know, is a man who's called a friend of God. And God, because he loves Abraham, brings heaven to earth. He brings his decision-making, his plans and his purposes into Abraham's perspective. And Abraham cares for his guests. He shows them good hospitality. And Abraham, his wife Sarah, have to to deal with a surprise because God, as I said earlier, is a God of possibility. And suddenly people who had no hope of a child seem to have the promise of a son once more. And that takes us through to verse 16. And then God reveals his plan to Abraham. It seems to be that Abraham is in earshot, perhaps, as God speaks out his purpose for Abraham. Because God, sorry, Abraham overhears what God has planned for Sodom and Gomorrah. There will be judgment and destruction because of their wickedness. Remember what I said, God is not vindictive or irrational. There's this very strange thing in verse 21. The Lord says, I shall go down and see whether their deeds warrant the outcry reaching me. I must know the truth. Now, of course, there's no reason for the God of heaven, the omnipotent, to go down in person and see what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely he must know this. But here's a concession to us. We're seeing God's dealings from our perspective. God is showing us he doesn't do things irrationally. He sees, he knows and judgment follows in good order. And then there's this argument, this conversation where Abraham challenges God and it reveals something very interesting for me about the way Abraham works. And this is why this idea of arguing with God has something very profound to teach us. Verse 23, Abraham drew near him, this is the Lord, and asked, Will you really sweep away innocent and wicked together? And that question reveals an assumption about the way that God works. Abraham assumes that God can only deal with the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah by destroying every single living being in that place. And he knows that his brother and his brother's wife and his family are there and that they're righteous people and he wants to spare them. And so Abraham starts this plea bargain, this argument with God, saying, well, you know, if there's 50 people, maybe you'll spare the city, and then at least the righteous people will be spared. Because Abraham has to learn how God works. There's no sweeping generalisation in God's world. His judgement is specific. 
and as they negotiate down a number of righteous people to be spared, Abraham, I think, is being taught a lesson and we're being taught a lesson too. God is a God of possibility. Salvation and redemption are possible for righteous people in a world that seems filled with wickedness and sin. God doesn't need to sweep everything away to grasp, quite literally, out of the fire the few people that he loves and take them close to him and bring them to safe places. And so, Abraham learns that God is a God of mercy, one who is able to pick out individual people, like you and like I, like Abraham and his wife Sarah, like Lot, and bring them out into safe places. So, whilst there might seem to be an argument here, and whilst we seem to have Abraham changing God's mind, it's Abraham who's learning a lesson. As he argues with God, he comes to realise something very special, something very profound about the way God acts. So for those who love God, heaven comes to earth and God reveals his plans and his purposes to us. A good argument teaches us good things about a good God. And finally, God is a God of possibility, willing and able to save us. That's argument number one. Abraham doesn't shout at God. It doesn't seem so. We're not told that in Genesis. But some people argue quietly and some people argue by sh- like shouting. Some of you know that we have some very tempestuous neighbours next door. When they're together, when they're with us, they're friendly and loving and gentle and tender with each other. But they can only disagree by shouting and we get to hear that through the walls. And so nervously we'll hear something being said at the start of an evening often quite random and insignificant Kate, did you move my knickers down the radiator? and then suddenly all hell breaks loose and it's like having EastEnders through the living room wall and you can tell that these two women are standing up and they're shouting at each other across the room because that's the way they have a dialogue that's the way they argue but it's also clear when you see them in other contexts that no permanent damage is done. That's just the nature of their relationship. And it's clear that Jesus' disciples don't like shouty kinds of arguments, as we find out in Matthew chapter 15, which is where I'd like to turn now. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21. Jesus then withdrew to the region of Tyre, and Sidon. He's just had a debate um, with the scribes and the Pharisees and he's now moved out of Jewish territory into Gentile lands, into, into non-Jewish parts of Israel. And a Canaanite woman came from those parts, meeting him crying, Son of David, have pity on me. My daughter is tormented by a devil. But he said, Not a word in reply. Seems a bit passive-aggressive to me. His disciples came and urged him, send her away, see how she comes shouting after us. They weren't in the mood for a shouty kind of argument, were they? And Jesus appears to agree with them. That this woman is actually a menace and should just go away. Jesus replied, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
and to them alone. And if I was one of the disciples, I might be feeling quite comfortable at this point. Okay, we did the right thing there. We understood how Jesus would deal with the situation. We predicted this one correctly, didn't we? But the woman came and fell at his feet and cried, Help me, sir. Jesus replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's still persisting, still being stubborn, still saying, There's nothing I can do for you. True, sir, she answered. And yet the dogs eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. She doesn't give up. She argues back. And Jesus, hearing this, replied, What faith you have. Let it be as you wish. And from that moment, her daughter was restored to health. And if I'd been there, if I'd been one of those disciples, I'd probably be shaking my head, at least inwardly, and going, not again. Why does he never act in the way that we think he will? He even even took our side and said to this woman, go away, I can't do anything for you, and now he seems to have changed his mind because she's argued with him. I'd be confused, and I suspect they were. I wonder if among the many things that are happening here, Jesus might be teaching his disciples a lesson. Because whether the woman genuinely influences Jesus to change his mind, what the disciples would have seen is that even Jesus, their teacher, having stated a position, is prepared to say something different and contradictory and, from their perspective at least, change his mind. And if Jesus can say one thing and then do something unexpected, then perhaps we should do should do too. If God is a God of possibility, if God speaking to us through Jesus is a God of possibility, then we should be people of possibility too and not shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces just because we don't think they fit. We prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning quite deliberately because whilst it's not an argument, it's the last conversation with God that I wanted to think about this morning before we share bread and wine together. In those two arguments, the one with Abraham, the one with the Syrophoenician woman, who changed? Abraham? Probably because he learnt something about God that he'd not learnt before. Jesus' disciples? Probably, because they learnt that God's salvation is not limited to the Jews, God's chosen people. And the Lord's Prayer is like that. It seems to be a series of questions, a series of requests, if you like, one side of a debate or an argument or a conversation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's also a request, but isn't it telling us recognise what's wrong with the world and why it isn't like God's kingdom? And if it isn't like God's kingdom, what can we do about it now? And shouldn't we be waiting and hoping and praying earnestly that it will come soon? Give us today our daily bread is not just a request 
for God to feed us. God is teaching us as we even ask the question that we are wholly reliant on him for every single thing that we need to stay alive. If we're praying this prayer, are we asking God to change and to change the circumstances of our lives? Or are we almost turning the questions on ourselves and praying, God, these are things about me that I need to change? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's a stark reminder of our capacity to fall short of the glory and majesty of Jesus. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God, help us to demonstrate the same possibility that you showed to Abraham and the cities of the plain and to the disciples and that woman from Syrophoenicia. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not just a question, it's a reminder that life is dangerous, that the path to the kingdom of God is fraught with snares and traps for the unwary and disciples need to be on their guard. This world is a dangerous place for us and God will bring us through. But we need to change and be watching and perceptive of the dangers on the way. So, the scriptures give us a picture. They show us that God explains himself to us in terms of an argument, in terms of a conversation, in terms of questions that are answered. But sometimes it's the questions themselves that teach us something rather than the answers that we're given. If we're going to have that kind of conversation with God, we need to listen and hear both sides of the argument. By the end of that conversation, Abraham had learned something about the way God acts, as had Jesus' disciples when he spoke to the Syrian woman. And as we listen, we should celebrate the fact that God is a God of possibility. He rescued Lot and some of his family out of destruction and judgment because they were righteous people. They loved God and God was prepared to redeem them. God is a God of possibility because it's possible for all people to be saved. The disciples had to learn that about the Syrophoenician woman. And if God is a God of possibility... And if in arguing with God we have to learn to change, then as we discuss and as we argue, as we must do, as we will do as brothers and sisters, we have to listen to both sides of the argument and be prepared to change our point of view too. I'd like us to sing again. I'd like us to sing hymn 231. Because for Abraham, for the disciples of Jesus, God was close and God was present to them. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we remember and celebrate as we take bread and wine together, we remind ourselves that God is a God of possibility, that God will save us and redeem us. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. And so we come to share bread and wine. Because God is a God of possibility. 
because he sends us food that never perishes. Sufficient not just for each new day, but for a whole lifetime and life eternal. And this is what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We'll give thanks for the bread and stay seated as we do so. Ben's going to come and lead that prayer for us. Father, who created everything wonderful, everything right in this world, be with us now, our minds and souls, as we remember your Son through this bread. Amen. Jesus says to us again, I am the bread of life. I'm speaking of the bread that comes down from heaven and whoever eats it will never die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread which I shall give is my own flesh, given for the life of the world. Jesus continues speaking to us. In very truth I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. It is not like the bread which our fathers ate. They are dead. But whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup will live forever. Wan will offer our thanks for the wine. Our Heavenly Father, as we come again this morning to share the wine amongst us, we are amazed again that Although we may do this every week or just about every week for many years, it never ceases to amaze us how profound simplicity brings us to the realization that you gave us your son for us. And Father, in the words that we have just sung, Ours and mine is the guilt, but yours is the righteousness. And Lord Jesus, yours is the cleansing blood. And this is what we remember now as we share the wine. And Father, we pray that, as we have also read, you will come and live with us. And you, Lord Jesus, not only will come and live with us, but in us. And Father, this is the fellowship that we want to have today, not only among ourselves, but with you and the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray in his name. Amen. And so we share together the real drink that is the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus.
I was at Sarah's baptism last night and it reminded me of the time when at the age of 17 I committed my own life to Jesus. And I've learned since then that God will hear all my questions and all my arguments. That he is a good listener for people who are trying to make sense of all that he says and all he wants us to be. And I've also learnt that people who argue with God should also know when to shut up and be silent because sometimes we can say nothing. And that's what I have in mind as we sing our last song together. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? And after we've sung this together, and is going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll sit together, and the band are going to play a song. And it's a song that I love, because it captures, in the words of Scripture, the true hope of all of Jesus' followers. And if you know it, I'd like you to sing it. And if you don't, listen or join in when you feel comfortable because it celebrates the promise that Jesus talked about for those who eat his flesh and drink his blood that he will raise all of us up at the last day so sing this together and he will pray or sit and sing or listen or reflect on the words of our last song and our worship for this morning will end there Almighty God, Lord, we, we come now to, to close this service by, by approaching you in this formal way. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you, you let us speak you let us share our thoughts, our, our arguments, our discomfort, our joys and sorrows with you. Thank you too, Lord, that, that you hear us. Thank you that sometimes you you show us answers and help us along and sometimes you just you just demonstrate to us yourself your mighty power your awesome love lord help us sometimes to stop and to to breathe and drink in who you are not to worry about how all the pieces fit together. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for Jesus.
And thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose and a plan for each one of us and also for this world. And Lord, we pray now that you will send Jesus back here soon so that that all things will be restored, that all things will be at one with you. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray that you will send it soon. Amen.